Hey, good morning to you all. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, really pray for your strength to really help me to preach your word faithfully. And for us here to continue to examine your word, to know what we should be doing as we have been forgiven in Jesus and as we continue to live here before you. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I remember meeting um, some people uh, over the years, and some of them were very successful. And um, I remember one of them, or more than one of them, I said to me, he said, you know, Andrew, you know what you need to do? You need to get a life coach. And I was like, what's a life coach? You know, I've heard of basketball coach, golf coach, swimming coach. What do you need a life coach for? So then they said, well, you know, you need a life coach because the life coach will look at your skills and your gifts and will make a plan for your life. And that got me thinking, right? I was thinking, you know, what is the plan for my life? Uh, Does the fact that I'm now a Christian uh, mean that I have a different plan for my life? Does God have a plan for my life? And if, if He does have a plan for my life, what is it? So what is the plan for your life? Do you have a plan for your life? Well, as we've been looking through the book of Thessalonians, uh, it's focused very much in the beginning parts about where we stand before God, right? Where we stand before God. And it said right in the beginning of chapter 1, <clears throat> excuse my throat, I got a bit of a cold, that God had chosen us for salvation. So if you look up here on the slide, right? Okay, it said that God had chosen us for salvation as He had chosen the Thessalonians and that the Thessalonians had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised uh, from the dead Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So as we, as we look at this passage, it sort of shows us what happened in the past, what happens in the present, what happens in the future, right? So God had chosen the Thessalonian Christians, just as he's chosen us in the past, and then we are meant to wait for the coming of Jesus in the future to save us from God's wrath or judgment. Okay? Now, so if you, if you look at this diagram, you can sort of think of this idea. So judgment was coming upon all of us. Next slide. Then God brought his judgment to Jesus instead of ourselves. Okay, next slide. And then we were chosen to have faith in Jesus But then what happens between us being chosen to have faith in Jesus to the time where Jesus returns, okay, which is the next slide, okay? So do we just uh, twiddle our thumbs, you know, watch TV, have a long, long holiday? What do we do? Well, as we go back to the passage, uh, next slide, it says that what we are meant to do is what the Thessalonian Christians did, which was to serve the living and true God. In between the period of us being chosen and having faith in God till the time when Jesus returns or when we die, what do we do in the interim? We serve the living God. And this is where chapter 4 comes back into the picture, right? Because chapter 4 sort of instructs them how they are to live, how the Thessalonian Christians were to live before Jesus came as they were waiting, how they were to wait for Jesus to come. So if you look here in chapter 4 verse 1, it says... As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. 
And now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So what does it mean to serve God? To serve God is to live in a way in order to please God. Now this is a really radical idea, isn't it? I'm sure that when you woke up this morning, when you brush your teeth, when you had your breakfast, you know, what were you thinking about? You were thinking in terms of how to please yourself, right? What am I going to have today to please myself? What am I going to do today to have maximum satisfaction for myself? I am at the center of the world, or my world, and my working world, my, my studies, my home life, my watching TV world, my internet surfing world. But here it says that actually once we are Christian, once we've had faith in Jesus, once we've been chosen by God, we are to live to please God and not ourselves. And it's a very difficult thing to do because it is not very instinctive and natural of us to think of how do I please God? Right? It's not a natural thing to do. When I, when I make decisions, when I do things, when I choose things, I don't think, is this pleasing to God? Rather, what happens is I think to myself, is this pleasing to me? Right? But then as we look at this passage, it's very, very clear that it must be the norm for the Christian living. Right? First of all, we see here that Paul, the apostle, makes it absolutely clear that what he is saying to the Thessalonian Christians is not a suggestion. It's not an optional extra for the Christian life, but this is the Christian life. This is how we must live. Because he says to them <clears throat> that we instructed you that you must live this way. We asked and urged you that you must do this. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. Now these words come from words commonly found in the military. right? Where you are instructed to do things and you have to do these things. And these instructions do not come by Paul's authority. But they come from God's authority. From the authority of Jesus himself. Right, because he says that he's instructing them and urging them in the Lord and by the authority of the Lord. So as we look at these words, we see that actually if we reject the instruction to live in order to please God, we're not rejecting the Apostle Paul, but we're rejecting Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior. So let me ask you for a moment. Does God have a plan for my life? Does God have a plan for your life? Right? Sometimes you, you, you look at books or people think about it. What is God's plan for my life? Maybe sometimes you have thought about yourself. What is God's plan for my life? And usually when we ask that question, we ask it in a way which is pleasing to myself rather than pleasing God. So when I say, what's God's plan for me? Should I take this job or another job? I don't think it, of it in terms of, is this job going to please God more or not? I think in terms of, is this job pleasing me? Uh, should I buy this house or, or, or another house? Should I buy this car or, or, or not? Or, or should I do this or that? Should I go out with this person or not? We often think in terms of, what is the most pleasing thing for me? What is going to be the most successful thing for me? But ultimately, what is God's plan is that in every action, 
every action that we do, it must be pleasing to God. That is the whole aim of life, isn't it? This is how we must live in order to please God. So I remember an old pastor used to tell me how uh, in his many years of being a pastor, people used to come to him and uh, they had already thought through things, you know, they had some decisions that they made and basically when they came to him, it was like a, you know, a fait accompli. It means that they really made up their mind and all he, they really wanted from him was his blessing. And sometimes when people came up to him and they had already made up their mind about decisions, he realized that it wasn't actually pleasing to God. It was actually against God's will. And what he would say to them was, come, let's sit down and pray about this decision and ask God whether it's really pleasing to him. And then these people realized that their decisions, their plans were not really pleasing God at all, but pleasing themselves. And I think that's a challenge for us because in so many things that we do, many times we think that we are pleasing God, but we're actually pleasing ourselves. Or maybe we're pleasing other people. But as a Christian... As someone who's been saved and is waiting for Jesus to come, our decision-making in everything must be pleasing to God. And what's really striking here as well, the next passage, the uh, next slide, is that he says that they must, they, they must keep pleasing God and keep doing this more and more. See, there's no point in time where we stop living in the way that is pleasing to God. You know, it's not like retirement, you know, like, okay, I've, I've pleased God for like uh, a certain amount of time. Now I can retire from pleasing God. I can just do what I want to do, right? Because as we've read, the Thessalonian Christians were good Christians. They were not slackers, right? They were serious Christians. Right? And we read in chapter 1, if you see up here, that, uh, that, that Paul had thanked God for their work uh, produced by faith. Uh, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. And in chapter 3, he'd, he'd been filled with joy about the news, about their faith and love. But yet, Paul wants them to, to keep pleasing God more and more, to not be satisfied with what they were already doing. He wanted them to be abounding and plentiful and, 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 and totally filled with pleasing God and everything. And I think that shows that there's a danger, isn't it? You, you know, Paul doesn't tell the Thessalonian Christian these things because they, you know, they are not in danger. But there is a danger as Christians that we become static and stagnant in terms of pleasing God. We become stuck in our Christian living and we think that we've done enough to please God and we don't need to do any more. And I think that's a, a very good picture here. If you look at the next slide, <coughs> hey. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. That sort of just came up by itself, right? How come my computer doesn't, it doesn't move on my computer? Anyway, but if you look at the translation, which actually you read here in this passage, it says, as, with the other, as for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we have instructed you how to live in order to please God. And actually the, the ESV translation and the Holman translation, other translations, uh, captured this word live, uh, as it literally is in its original language, which is to walk. Right? He wants you to walk more and more to please God. And that's why the title of the sermon is, right, Exhortation on How to Christian Walk. And I think this idea of walking is the idea of walking in a, in a Christian way in everything. Now, I think it's a very powerful image because walking 
it's the idea of slow, not spectacular, but continual progress, right? You know, when I'm walking, I'm not running, I'm not sprinting, but I'm walking, I'm making progress every day in terms of pleasing God. And I think this is a very good image to have in our mind. In your Christian living, are you walking to please God? Or have you stopped walking to please God? You know, are you still making that progress to please God? When you look back in your life, say five years ago, ten years ago, and you compare yourself to today, could you really say that you are pleasing God more and more today than you were five years ago or ten years ago? Uh, you know, are, are you standing still? Are you making progress in living to please God in what you're doing? Now, verse 3 to 8, he deals with very specific issues which the Thessalonian Christians face. And in verse 3, he said, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, this word sanctified um, is a very rare word. I mean, we don't use it every day. In, uh, in, in our everyday language, any of you use the word sanctified last week? No, right? It's not something we use very often, right? And that's because sanctified is a religious word. Okay? Sanctified is a religious word. It literally means to be consecrated. Uh, let's see, it doesn't help, right? Sanctified, consecrated, all the same, right? But it literally means to be dedicated or to be set apart, to be used for God's purposes. So let's say I say, I sanctify, I consecrate my water bottle. It means that I, I've set apart this water, pot, water bottle only for religious use, for religious purposes. And that's what this word is being said here. It says, as we please God, it means that we should be sanctified, we should be set apart, we should be set apart and dedicated for the use of God. Now, this is often confused in the Christian life, okay? Because in Christian life, we are saved. So so we are saved in faith through the death of Jesus. So if you you look up here on this slide, this is salvation. Uh, Salvation is the once and for all act of being washed clean and set right before God because Jesus died for me and I have faith. That's what it means to be saved. Once and for all I'm saved, it is the past. It is the past tense. I put my faith in Jesus, I'm saved before God. When God looks at me, I have no sin. To be sanctified is very different. Uh, next slide. To be sanctified means that now I'm set apart for God. I'm consecrated for God. And every day, I've given myself over to God to be more and more holy and to be more and more like God and to be like Jesus. This is a process. Sanctification is a process that I live out my life in. And I keep going on to the day I die. Now, what does it mean to be sanctified? To be more and more God-like, to be more and more holy, to be set apart for God. Well, for the Thessalonian Christians, one specific area which they had to dedicate their or consecrate their life to was to avoid sexual immorality. Now, what does it mean to be sexually immoral? What does it mean to be sexually immoral? Um, Have you ever asked yourself the question? You know, is it like, um, because, you know, definitions are very important, right? I mean, 
Bill Clinton said that he never had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, right? So definitions are very, very important. If you all don't know who Bill Clinton is and Monica Lewinsky, you can Google it later, right? But sexual immorality within the understanding of the Bible, not of society as a whole, right? But of the Bible is that God made man to, to, to have sexual relations within a loving marriage between man and woman. Okay, that's the only context in which sexual expression or sexuality is meant to be expressed. So sexual morality is all sex outside of marriage. Okay? All sex outside of marriage is sexual immorality. The problem was that the Thessalonian Christians struggled to be sanctified in this area. They found it really hard to, to exercise their sexual lives in an appropriate way. And part of the reason was because in the background that they came from, in Macedonia and ancient Greece, in the Roman society, there was a lot of sexual immorality. Okay, so don't forget that these Greeks and Romans, they worshipped gods who actually were very morally ambiguous themselves. You know, the Greek gods used to have sex with other Greek goddesses. And in society at large, it was considered normal for people to find their sexual satisfaction outside of marriage, male or female. And we know for a fact that prostitutes were often used in that time in Macedonia and Roman society to help people so-called worship their gods. So coming from that sort of environment, you can sort of understand how when people were converted from that sort of environment to become Christians, they would find it very hard to to sanctify themselves and not to practice sexual morality. But look at what God says to them. He says in verse 4, that each of you should learn to control your own body, right, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. Okay? Now, what it's really saying here is that the Bible doesn't uh, you know, sugarcoat the problem. He says that it is hard, the Bible says that it is hard to exercise sanctification in, in sexual issues. That there, there, is, there is a real definite effort involved to control your own body. In fact, this uh, word here, control your own body, is the word control your own vessel. Uh, it sort of speaks of your body as like something which contains your soul. Okay, So your flesh, your body, is like part of you, but it's something which is not like a robot, but it's like the vessel in which your soul is, is contained in. And the Bible says that, look, you need, as a Christian, to control the vessel of your body. And I always remember, for those of you who... Uh, you know, went to David Cook, the Project Timothy talks, which we just finished. He gave this really interesting illustration to the pastor's talk, right? He said about how when he was in, I think, England, uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a single um, Christian man. And I don't know how they got to this topic about sexual uh, temptation. So you know how cool it is in England, right? So when, when this guy got tempted, he would go in wintertime in England and have a cold shower. And then, and then, so David said, why would he do that, right? You know? He said, because he wanted to show his body 
who was boss, right? That he, his mind was boss over his body, right? His vessel. And I think that's the idea here, isn't it? That when he says here, you should learn to control your own body or a vessel in a way that is holy and honorable. I remember C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, said that to resist lust requires great mortification. I said, oh, wow, so cheap this word mortification. I have to go look up a dictionary, I never heard of it. But mortification is the idea of actually inflicting discomfort or even pain on yourself to to deny your, your bodily passions. It requires mortification. You must learn to control your vessel or your body. Because for those people who do not know God, in verse 5, what do they do? Instead of the person controlling the vessel or the body, it is the lust which sort of controls the body instead. Now, if you look here, it says not in passionate lust like the pagans, right? Now, we sort of think of passionate lust in a very, uh, I guess, you know, sympathetic way, right? You know, you watch movies, people are full of passion, you know, for one another. But that's not the, the picture that is sort of being formed here. When it talks about passionate lust, it's talking about lust which is very, very strong, very, very aggressive, very ungovernable. Right? It's, it's a very aggressive, active word. It's sort of saying lust, which is, which is sort of out of control. And I remember reading a book once, which said that lust, which is out of control, is like being chained to a lunatic. And then like, you know, you have a lunatic chained to you, right? And this lunatic is pulling you all over the place, dragging you around, because you have no control over it. And that's the picture that is being shown here. Right? The Christian is to learn to control his own vessel and not let his lust be like this lunatic who's chained to you, dragging you around, doing all sorts of things that you have no control over. Right? And then it goes on to tell us four reasons why this is so important. In verse 6 it says, And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now obviously, if you look up here, this is the NIV 84 translation. I'm reading from the latest translation. But the first reason is that it actually takes advantage of of someone else. So, in the ancient world, uh, they didn't have a problem with uh, um, uh, singleness, right? People, generally, everybody got married by the time they were in their early 20s, okay? So, in that sense, uh, whenever you slept with someone, whenever you sin sexually with someone, you were actually taking advantage of someone else. Uh, but, how are they taking advantage of someone else? If you look here in the NIV 84 translation, it talks about how you're actually sinning against your brother or sinning against your sister. But I don't think it's so much sinning against the person you're with, but you're actually taking advantage of the person who will eventually marry that person or is married to that person. Because you see, fundamentally, sexual activity, sexuality, is always about exclusiveness. 
It's always about exclusiveness. Right? You are always supposed to be loyal to that one person. But the problem is that when you have sex outside of marriage, it's actually an act of greed. Because you're taking what doesn't belong to you. It belongs to someone else. You know, it's like, even when you view pornography on the internet, you're you are actually viewing something which actually only a husband and wife should be viewing. You, you know, you're actually... I remember... Um, okay, this just came to me. I remember last time there was some scandal in Taiwan about some politician and, and, and they were filmed secretly or something. And I remember this teacher was watching this and afterwards she was interviewed in the newspaper and she said, oh, she felt really dirty because she felt that she was seeing something that only belonged to somebody else. And I think that's the picture here, right? Because you're actually sinning against someone else in a community because you're taking something which doesn't belong to you and selfishly deriving pleasure from it yourself. And I think finally, what it actually shows is you're actually being greedy because God gives you one sexual partner, your marriage partner, but you want more than one. You want somebody else who doesn't actually belong to you and God has not given you at all. So that's the first reason why it says there that you should not uh, have sexual morality because you're actually being greedy and taking something and sinning against someone else, taking advantage of someone else or wronging someone else. But more importantly, it says the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we have told you and warned you before. Now, it's not just a sin against my brother and sister or someone else that, that my sexual sin strikes against. Because when I sin sexually, I sin first and foremost against the creator of sex, God himself. Now, I always remember in Genesis chapter 39, which is up here. Next slide. Right? Uh, you, you all know Joseph, right? Joseph is, uh, you know, he went to, if you don't know Joseph, you remember Sunday school? He went to Egypt and, uh, you know. Oh, sorry? Well, my wife, the children's church leader is telling me. Yeah, anyway, so he, he went ahead to, to actually um, go, go ahead of his brothers because God planned it that way. Anyway, he became very successful and um, Pharaoh appointed him like in charge of everything. Uh, anyway, so he was a well-built, built, handsome guy. He was a dude, right? And after a while, his master's wife, Pharaoh's wife, took notice of Pharaoh and said, Hey, come to bed with me. Now, obviously, if this was a primetime television, he may have or would have. But instead, he refused, right? With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against Pharaoh? No, he didn't say that, right? Which is very surprising, right? Because if I was writing it, you'd think, my master has given me everything except you. How could I sin against him, right? Pharaoh. But he says, how could I then do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her and even be with her. Now, you notice here 
that fundamentally Joseph sees sin, sexual sin, sexual morality as a sin against God, such a wicked thing and sin against God, he says. And ultimately, that's because sexual sin uh, rejects God's authority and God's commandment of how sexuality should be expressed. Now, 1 Thessalonians is very clear, right? Next slide. Because it's a very strong statement because it says, God will judge all, all such sins, all those who commit such sins as these. Every type of sexual immorality will be punished by God. And all the more, as Christians who are waiting for Jesus to come, we must not cut corners when it comes to sexual immorality. We must not make exceptions to sexual morality because God will, will punish uh, sexual morality. Now the third point is, it says, that um, God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Now I think this is really deep and we, we can't see how deep it is, how cheap it is, because um, we just think it's like, okay, you're not meant to be uh, impure, but be holy, right? But I think it, it's actually a lot more than that, and I'll show you why. See, if you look at the ESV translation, which is the next slide, the ESV actually says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Okay, there is a distinction, right? Because for is for the purpose of, in is in the realm of. Okay, let me explain. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but to live in holiness. This holiness is actually the same word as sanctification, in sanctification. And I think what the idea here is that when we are saved in Jesus Christ, we are not saved for the purpose of going back to purity, in purity, but to live in the sphere, in the environment, in the atmosphere of holiness and sanctification. Like someone said, the very air we breathe must be the, the air of holiness. And I think the reason is because the Thessalonian Christians lived in an atmosphere, an environment of sexual chaos, right? Sexual anarchy, sexual lawlessness. But God said that is not the air or the environment in which they were to breathe or to live in. They were to live in an environment or atmosphere of, of purity, I think that's the same thing for us, because for us, we also live in an atmosphere, once you look at the newspaper, you watch TV, you go to the cinema, you go to the internet, we, we, we live in an atmosphere of sexual license. I mean, you, there's advertising everywhere, right? I mean, you just, it's amazing, it's just sexuality everywhere. But we don't, we don't live in that sort of environment. As Christians, we live in an atmosphere of holiness. And therefore, the last point, Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now this last note is very important, right? Because obviously, you're not just rejecting man if you reject his instruction, but you're rejecting God Himself. But why does it say at the end there that if you reject this, you're actually rejecting God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit? Now, I think there are two reasons here is that the emphasis is on God gives you His Holy Spirit. That means God's presence in us, His Holy Spirit, demands that we respond to this 
Holy Spirit by leading lives of holiness because the Holy Spirit in us is always prompting us to live holy lives. But on top of that, to reject God's instructions on sexual purity is to, is to be very unthankful, right? Because God gave us His own Spirit, but instead of listening to His Holy Spirit, we are rebelling against it. Now I think this is very pertinent for us today. I'm sure that there's some of you here who are struggling with sexual sin. <clears throat> Nobody knows about it, maybe yourself. And you may be uh, making excuses for it. Right? You might be thinking, oh, that's okay, God won't mind, it's alright. All right? Nobody will find out about it and God will forgive me in the end. But I think this passage says very clearly uh, that actually God, it matters to God very much uh, how we use our sexuality. Uh, when I was in boarding school in Australia, I lived with uh, various families. And um, some of these families were Christian families. <clears throat> I used to visit them on the weekend. They used to go to church. I wasn't a Christian then, actually. Um, and uh, I, was, I didn't go to church with them. And I remember when I stayed with them, some of these so-called uh, Christian families had a collection of uh, pornographic videos, right? I think I was, I was a very um, curious person, so I, I always look around, right? And then, then I was from dark corner, there's pornographic videos. And like very, very, ex, you know, X-rated videos. And I cannot, for the life of me, imagine how is it they are able to make the, the, the I guess, harmonize the idea of being able to go to church on a Sunday and still be able to keep these videos in their house. Um, and the thing was, the thing that really, really surprised me was it wasn't just one family that I noticed this in, but more than one family. So I sort of asked myself, is this really consistent with, with, uh, with, with the Christian life? Uh, how... how does the household, uh, I guess, harmonize what we read in the Bible and what they're hearing in church and still be able to keep, keep these sort of videos there? And I'm sure it's because somehow they've been able to make exceptions to it or to rationalize it in some way. But if you read this passage, it says that actually God has not called us uh, to sexual morality and purity in this way, but to holiness. We are to live in this atmosphere of holiness we are to, to listen to God's Holy Spirit in us and to continue to walk in sexual purity. So if you're struggling with this issue, uh, I'd like to really challenge you in this area to, to not let passionate lust control your life, but to you, to have you control the vessel of your body. Now the next part in verse 9 to 12, <coughs> it says, Now about your love for one another, uh, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you, lo you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now again, uh, we've seen earlier that the Thessalonian Christians were uh, loving one another. Right? So if you look up here on the slide, right, they, they loved greatly. But last week we saw 
that Paul's prayer for them was that their love would overflow. Okay, so next slide. Right? They, they would overflow and increase for each other and for everyone else. Right? So remember this idea of overflow was like the idea of a drink overflowing, right? Or the love overflowing. And here he picks up the idea again. He wants them to love each other. But verse 10 is very important, right? Because he wants them to continue to love all of God's family throughout Macedonia and to do so more and more. Okay, now, the words all are very important, right? And the idea of God's family throughout Macedonia is really important. Because if you look at the next slide, okay, uh, don't worry, next one. Macedonia is a huge place, right? Okay, it looks bigger than Malaysia. Okay, and he's saying that he wants them to love all the brothers in Macedonia. And I think this is a, a very important lesson for us because we have a hard time loving just the people in our church. But actually, as God's family members, we are to love all the Christians, even people outside of Singapore, you know, Christian brothers and sisters in Indonesia, Malaysia, over the whole world. Now, the reason why I say this is because Unfortunately, I have met Christians, even Christian leaders of churches outside of our church, uh, maybe in our denomination, outside this denomination. And the sad thing is, they have no love for people outside of their own church or maybe even outside of their own denomination. And it's really sad, you know, because what I see is they seem to display more love for non-Christians than they have for even Christians who are outside of their church. But that's not the way that we are to love. See, the way we are to love is to not just love people narrowly, in a very parochial, you know, very exclusive way, but to love all God's family, even those outside of our church. Now, as it moves on to the last section, you might sort of think, you know, how is verse 11 to 12 connected with this, you know? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, right? Um, what's that got to do with love? Is it a new section? Is he talking about something else? Well, it seems to be pretty straightforward what's happening, right? It seems to be, obviously, that some Christians were not working. Some Thessalonian Christians were not working, and some of them were depending on the church to support them. Maybe they expected Jesus to come very soon. Maybe they were just lazy. But here, Paul seems to say very strongly that they are to mind their own business and work with their hands, just as we told you. Uh, seems to be that um, these people, in their lack of work, were, were, were actually, um, instead of leading a quiet life, they were unsettling and disrupting and, and, and causing chaos and confusion in, in other people, in the church. Maybe they're be becoming busybodies. And that's why he says to them, you, might, you should mind your own business and you should work with your hands. Right? Because sometimes, you know, people who have too much free time in their hands, they actually cause more problems than actually solving them. They, they are like uh, 
causing confusion, maybe teaching the wrong things, maybe gossiping, all these things. And he's saying to these people, look, you're actually abusing other people's love because you're depending on them for money. You should go out to work with your hands and to be productive with them. But being productive is not just for the sake of uh, earning money or not causing problems. Because in verse 12 it says, So in your daily life, you may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anybody. Now that's interesting, right? Because it's actually saying that our work, the way we work, uh, is a form of almost evangelism, right? It may win respect for uh, God from outsiders in the way that you work. And by working, they literally will not become parasites uh, to other Christians. They will actually support themselves. I always remember uh, many, many years ago when I was in theological college, I met a man who was a year ahead of me, which I don't usually meet people ahead of me because our, our years are quite big, about 100 plus a year, right? So we have a communal lunchtime and we were sitting down and I just happened to talk to him and I happened to realize that this person uh, was a, a, an accountant like me and uh, he also finished his chartered accounting exams. So like, and then I realized that he actually just finished his accounting exams, chartered accounting exams and then he went to theological college. <clears throat> so I sort of asked him, I said, well, you know, uh, <clears throat> that's a bit weird, right? Because uh, why would you bother working and studying so hard for your exams if you knew that you're going to become a pastor anyway? And he said to me, it was because in his company, in his uh, chartered accounting firm, there were two other Christians who gave Jesus a bad name. And these people would go for a very long lunch, they would leave early and be very unreliable at work because they knew that they were going to do full-time Christian work very soon, so they were like slacking off at work. So he decided for himself that he would work differently as a Christian to provide the alternative Christian model to working. And that's why he said that he wanted to finish his exams and pass his exams and then go off and become a pastor because he wanted to show that being a Christian was not inconsistent with actually being, I guess, reliable at work and still being able to do Christian work. And I think that what he said really makes sense. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that this passage says that you know, we should be uh, working Sundays and not coming to church, you know, working like to 12 o'clock every night and not going to Bible study, not having a Sabbath. But it is a good reminder that the way we work, actually, as Christians, can win respect of people outside and actually is something which is very important. If you have the ability to work, then we shouldn't be sponging off other people, but we should be working uh, to, to support ourselves and to work in a way which actually is faithful to what Jesus is telling us. Now, <clears throat> as we come to this passage to the end, right? Are you living uh, to please God in everything you do? Are you living to please God in the way that you express your sexuality? Are you bringing your body, your vessel under control or is passionate lust controlling you? Are you loving more and more, not just people here, but people outside, Christian brothers and sisters outside of our church? Are you working faithfully before Him? I remember this logo. I, I scanned it yesterday. 
you know, I've got all these books which I, I just only have time to read the outside, right? And I thought this logo was really interesting because I've never seen it anywhere else. I think it's the only book in my whole collection which has this logo. But I thought this is such a great logo, right? Because it actually shows that discipleship is a journey. Right? <clears throat> All right, it says that very clearly. I've started, so I'll finish discipleship to the end. <clears throat> I think that sort of captures very clearly and in a very succinct way what the Christian sanctification walk is about. I've started, I have faith in Jesus, I've been saved, but I'm going to keep being sanctified. I'm going to keep, actually he's running, not walking. Okay, he's going to, I'm going to keep going on to the end. And I wonder whether that's, that's something to challenge you with. That in your sanctification, are you continuing to please God? In everything that you do, not just some things, but everything that you do, uh, are you are you walking ahead, continuing to press forward to be to be you know set apart for God to be in holiness? And are you living in that atmosphere of holiness and purity? Because as we wait for Jesus to return, uh, we are not here to twiddle our thumbs or to have a holiday, right? But we are to keep being, you know, sanctified. And set apart and dedicated for God in everything that we do. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we want to thank you so very much for choosing us and saving us in Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the great mass of our sin which was put at the foot of the cross when Jesus died and is completely burned away. We pray that as we live before you today, as we wait for Jesus' return, we would live to please you and not to please ourselves or not even to please other people. But in everything that we do, it is to please you and you alone. In the area of sexual morality, dear Father, we know that in our century, just as in the first century, the world around us is filled with sexual anarchy and chaos. But dear Father, help us to, to control uh, the vessel, the body that you've given us. To not be influenced uh, by the society around us, but to, to live in holiness and to be honorable, to not be greedy and to steal images and sounds and, and, and bodies which do not belong to us, but rather be, to be content uh, with the situation that you've put us in. Dear Father, we pray that truly you may help us to love and love greatly. Even those people who are not part of our church, but yet are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Dear Father, we pray as well that in the way that we work, we would be working in a way which brings respect to you. And truly also uh, to be able to, uh, to not abuse the love of other people when we are able to support ourselves. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.